chapter 29. And we've gone through these kings of Judah, and there's been great ones, good ones, okay ones, and we just finished up with a really bad one last week. Ahaz was the worst, and so Ahaz was where we left off last week, and the, the last verse of chapter 28 says that it, you know Ahaz died, and he was so bad that they didn't even bury him with the kings. He just undid anything that was good toward the Lord. He tried to destroy it. And he furthered things that were contrary to the Lord. He didn't live that long. He just he lived a horrible life. So he, he just brought it on himself. But the amazing thing is that chapter 28 leaves off with then Hezekiah, his son, reigned in his place. And so tonight we go forward with this great king, King Hezekiah. And we're going to pick it up in verse 1. But just one bit of background here, if this is important. When we come to Hezekiah, we need to realize that all the prophecies... Many of the prophecies from the book of the prophets, different prophets in the Old Testament, prophesied about the demise of the northern kingdom, the ten tribes in the north. And the first three years that Hezekiah came to power, the Assyrians were the superpower, and they were besieging the cities in the north. Now, we know that the north has historically been at civil war with the south, with Judah and the southern tribes. And despite efforts to unify the, the separated tribes, they just couldn't come together essentially. And so they were perpetually at war with each other. But now when Hezekiah came to power at the age of 25, there's a somber mood over everybody because Sennacherib and the Assyrians are besieging the northern cities, including Samaria. And after three years, they took them and they took all those captives from the north. Many of them, the Assyrians would displace people to create confusion, take them out of their comfort zone and put them somewhere where they weren't comfortable and vice versa and move other people where they had dislocated the previous people. And so the second three years of Hezekiah's reign was the reality of what was going on, and you knew that these guys weren't satisfied. They'd be coming to Judah, and we'll get to that next week. So I just give you that context because there's a, there's a heavy cloud, you know, over, over the situation as he comes to power. So chapter 29, verse 1, we read this. Hezekiah became king when he was 25 years old, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. So he lived 54 years. His mother's name was Abijah, and she was the daughter of Zechariah. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. In the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, that would be the temple, and repaired them. Then he brought in the priests and the Levites and gathered them in the east square, and he said to them, Hear me, Levites. Now sanctify yourselves, or separate yourselves, and sanctify the house of the Lord your God of your fathers, and carry out the rubbish from the holy place. For our fathers have trespassed and done evil in the eyes of the Lord our God. They have forsaken him, have turned their faces away from the dwelling place of the Lord, turned their backs on him. They've also shut up doors of the vestibule, put out the lamps, have not burned the incense or offered burnt offerings in the holy place to the God of Israel, that is the services inside the temple. Therefore, the wrath of God fell upon Judah and Jerusalem, and he's given them into up to trouble, to desolation, and to jeering, as you see with your eyes. For indeed, because of this, our fathers have fallen by the sword, our sons, our daughters, and our wives are in captivity. And that's a reference to what was already happening to the relatives in the north. Now, it is in my heart to make a covenant with the Lord God of Israel that his fierce wrath may turn away from us. My sons, do not be negligent now, for the Lord has chosen you to stand before him, to serve him, 
and that you should minister to him and burn incense. And then these Levites arose, Mahalath, the son of Amasai, Joel, the son of Azariah, of the sons of the Kohathites, of the sons of Merari, Kish, the son of Abdi, and Azariah, the son of Jehaliel, and of the Gershonites, Joah, the son of Zimia, and Eden, the son of Joah, of the sons of Elazaphon, Shimri, and Jeel, of the sons of Asaph, Zechariah, and Mataniah, of the sons of Heman, Jehiel, and Shimei, and of the sons of Jedathan, Shemaiah, and Uziel. And they gathered their brethren and sanctified themselves and went according to the commandment of the king at the words of the Lord to cleanse the house of the Lord. Then the priests went into the inner part of the house of the Lord to cleanse it and brought out the debris that they had found in the temple of the Lord to the court of the house of the Lord. And the Levites took it out and carried it to the brook Kidron. Now, they began to sanctify on the first day of the first month. On the eighth day of the month, they came to the vestibule of the Lord. So they sanctified the house of the Lord in eight days. And on the 16th day of the first month, they finished. Then they went into King Hezekiah and said, We have cleansed all the house of the Lord, the altar burnt offerings with all of its articles, and the table of showbread with all of its articles. Moreover, all the articles which King Ahaz in his reign had cast aside in his transgression, we have prepared and sanctified, and there they are before the altar of the Lord. Well, that's one of those good news passages, isn't it? <laughs> I just love reading, as we go through Chronicles and historical narratives, I just really enjoy reading stuff that's, uh, yeah, like people making good decisions, people getting stuff done, people doing the work of the Lord and being passionate about it, proactive and zealous about it. If you were to have a notepad or something or a journal and you're reading just this segment of scripture, these 19 verses, and you thought, I'm just going to write down favorable words that jump out at me, there would be so many of them. I mean, there really would be that they opened the doors of the house of the Lord. That's always good as opposed to closing the doors of the church, right? We see governments that try and close the doors of the church all the time in human history. And he's opening the doors of the church that they're taking out, they're sanctifying the place of worship. They're taking out the rubbish. They're, they're making a covenant. They're gathering the brethren together to get the work done. <laughs> they, they were efficient. They got it done quickly. And they restored things that had been destroyed by someone with unbelief. It's a beautiful passage of scripture. I think we can all agree upon that. And as we look at this text, it is, of course, if you have titles in your Bible, like I do with chapters, it says Hezekiah's reign, and then Hezekiah cleanses the temple. And obviously, that's the, what's going on here. It'd be a good idea to cleanse the temple anytime when it's in this disrepair from what his dad had done. But again, because of the imminent threat coming at them from the north, it's a really good idea to be doing this. And you know, at the age of 25, because we just saw previously, Jotham, who was a good king, came to become the king at age 25. And he only had 16 years, so he only lived 41 years. 20, you know, 26 here for Hezekiah. But he, he's, he's getting things done. I think when there's a critical situation, people are more open to urgency of getting spiritual things done, right? You older people remember, of course, 9-11, when we have a national day of prayer after this crisis, three days after it happened, and the whole nation shut down, and uh, houses of worship were filled all across the land. There's, you know, there's a, 
There's a sense of urgency when you watch something like the Twin Towers come down and people being mobilized. You might remember when, I remember going on Pendleton on seeing the Amtrak train track there, just all these military trains carrying you know, tanks and all this stuff headed for San Diego to head for the Middle East. And there's just like such an urgency in there at Calvary Costa Mesa. Man, the people just kept coming. They just kept coming on Sunday morning, all three services. They were coming Wednesday night. This was like, it was happening. People were, people were showing up with their Bibles, and we had their attention. And it's kind of unfortunate in the human experience that we need a crisis or a great threat to really create urgency in us sometimes to understand how urgent every day is with the Lord and how urgent eternity is, because it's going to be eternity someday for each one of us. Oh, it would just be beautiful if we could have this urgency without the sense of crisis going on in our life. But so often it takes personal crisis or national crisis to create urgency. And this is national urgency. And you are emboldened. You go back to 9-11 uh, when Bush was the president. He's emboldened. He's emboldened. And it's like Pearl Harbor attack, you know, when that happened. And Roosevelt, it was all, you know, people are going to church. You're emboldened when the nation feels threatened and people get very spiritual when they feel threatened for their loss of the temporal. And every, I mean, but what's fascinating to me too is that his dad was so evil that they, they rode that evil train right to the end, right? Like the people, until, until Ahaz died, they just let all the things of the Lord just be in disrepair until the very time that he became king, Hezekiah did. So we can only hope and pray that there's people in Judah who weren't waiting for Hezekiah to be king to do the right thing in their own life. Hopefully there's people that took the initiative to take out the rubbish in their own heart before the king let him in doing it on behalf of the nation in the temple. You follow me? But praise the Lord, it is a good time for a great king to rise up, and Hezekiah is one of the greatest of all time, really. It says in verse 10, this is a powerful statement, that it was in his heart to make a covenant with the Lord God of Israel. There's only a few covenants in the Bible as a whole, about a half dozen. So when you see something that says, let's make a covenant, see, it's one thing if someone builds an altar, like uh, Gideon would build an altar or something like that, or certain people are like, hey, the judge is like, hey, they built an altar, or they did something of that nature. But, it, but for a man to initiate a covenant with the living God, not just any man, but a man who's the king, the, the king, of, king of Israel, king of Judah, to initiate that covenant is a very powerful thing. It's strong words. It's not like saying like, hey, let's do this or we should consider this. He's saying, I'm saying like, we need to make a covenant and a promise and agreement with God right now and we, to, we need to do it. So he made that covenant. I wonder again, like what, what type of serious things would bring us to make a covenant? Because we want our yes to be yes, our no to be no, we tend to be kind of hesitant to really like overcommit, right? This is all in. He is all in, and that's what really gets our attention here. He is all in. So I really just point that out to us, that it was in his heart to be completely all in with what the Lord had. And, and it's really when women and men go all in with the Lord, whether it's because of a crisis, and again, I've been a minister for 35 years. I see where people go all in, when the child's diagnosed with cancer or the spouse is going to leave them. I've seen people go all in in crisis. And it's good when they go all in, but when the crisis passes, you know, you hope they're still going to be 
all in. It's always nice to go all in without a crisis. But either way, to be all in is, is a good thing. We like to be all in. The world has changed, and the kingdom of God is advanced by women and men who go all in, whether it was self-initiated with a covenant, Lord, I'm all in with you, or crisis-initiated by circumstances. But to be all in at this level in his heart for himself and to inspire the people to do the same is profoundly commendable. You think about Jesus. When he called people in the Gospels, they were called to be all in. Think how different the world would be. Think how different the world would be if when Jesus looked at Peter in that boat and said, follow me and I will make you a fisher of men, if Peter hadn't dropped the net and followed Jesus when they hit the shore. How different human history would be without Peter the apostle. How about Matthew the tax collector? His whole world was metrics and numbers. I mean, you talk about the compound effect. If anyone knows the compound effect of interest, incurring interest and generating more revenue and dividends, it's the tax collector. That's what tax collectors do. They generate more revenue. He's not only generating revenue for Rome, he's generating revenue for himself. That's the benefits of friends with Rome. What if when Jesus walked by him and he said, follow me, no, follow me, he didn't say make a fisher of men, he just said, follow me. So Jesus walks by Matthew and says, follow me. And we see that he immediately followed him. He immediately followed him. He made a covenant, if you will. He was all in. He immediately followed him with everything he was. And as wonderfully as that's portrayed in the TV series, The Chosen, how much more so in real life anyways? In September on the 9th, when I start reading the Gospel of Matthew, the, Ma the Gospel of Matthew is an amazing, there's four Gospels, and it's the one written by a Jew for Jews to prove that Jesus is the king of the Jews. Quotes more scripture than any other Gospels. The tax, the, the tax collector. It's pretty amazing. The man of metrics put it all together and led by the Spirit put this together to us. And when anyone starts to read the New Testament, they always start with Matthew. Isn't that beautiful? What if Matthew wasn't all in? What if he was one of the guys that said, oh, you know, I got to go first bury my father. I got to take care of my senior, my elderly parents and put that in front of the kingdom. Like, well, that wouldn't have worked. What if Matthew was the rich young, what could have been the rich young ruler? One thing you lack, go sell all your goods and follow me. I, I can't do that. See, he was 99.9% .9 in, but not all in. He didn't make the covenant. What a wonderful reminder to us from Hezekiah that we need to be all in. We need to be serious with the things of the kingdom because the cross, the blood, the baptism of the spirit, the empty tomb, and the coming return of the Lord is definitely all in. And this universe revolves around the person and the work of Jesus and is moving toward the return and the kingdom of Jesus, the kingdom of God. So people are all in for all kinds of things. We want to be all in. I'm challenging myself when I read this. At 62, what does all in look like? I know what it looked like in 1987 when Brian Burson said, come on staff and be a pastor. I know what that looks like when I was 26 in 1987. I'm, I'm really trying to discern what it looks like at 62. You know, oh, Pastor Joey's all in. Well, I don't know. Maybe I am, maybe I'm not. 
When you're running to first base on an infield, infield grounder in baseball, you know more than anyone else whether you're running as hard as you can on what's going to probably be an out, right? You know, what you're, you know if you're all in or not. Hezekiah was all in. Sometimes we think we're all in, but then we realize, no, I'm not, I'm not really all in. We want to be all in. Elisha, the prophet, when he was plowing the field, Elijah came by him, threw his coat on him, you know, and Elijah's like, oh, it's the upper call of God in Christ Jesus. And what does he do, man? He, he, he takes the plow, cuts it up, makes a fire, and he sacrifices the ox that he's plowing the field with. I mean, in that emotion and in that moment, in the covenant he made with the Lord, there's no going back. Like, he doesn't get 200 yards down the road and go like, oh, man, I think I made a mistake. Look, there's no plow and there's no ox. You are all in. There's no going back. So Hezekiah was all in. Just a reminder to us, today is here and now. And there, there's just, there's nothing else. There's forgiveness for yesterday and lessons to be learned. There's anxiety and uncertainties for tomorrow. And the things that will be there. All in, here and now. That's what the Lord's working with. And Hezekiah did it in like the 16-day count, but the eight days, whatever. Like He got it done. He became the king, and he got this done in the first two weeks, essentially, of his administration. Like, if you were out of town for your two-week vacation from work, trying to vacation before the Syrians show up and take your house, and you came back, you'd be like, what happened to the temple? Yeah, it happened fast. Verse 20. Then King Hezekiah rose early, gathered the rulers of the city. He's just getting started. And he went up to the house of the Lord. And they brought seven bulls, seven rams, seven lambs, seven male goats for sin offering for the kingdom, for the sanctuary, and for Judah. Man, look at these offerings. are specific for the kingdom, for the sanctuary, for Judah. Then he commanded the priests, the sons of Aaron, to offer them on the altar of the Lord. So they killed the bulls, and the priests received the blood and sprinkled it on the altar. See, we got blood going now. There has to be substitution. Somebody's got to die to make things right, and there's blood happening now. We got intercession, substitution. We got atonement happening. Likewise, they killed the rams and sprinkled the blood on the altar. They also killed the lambs and sprinkled the blood on the altar. Then they brought out the male goats for the sin offering before the king and the assembly, and they laid their hands on them, and the priests killed them. And they presented their blood on the altar as a sin offering to make atonement for all Israel. For the king commanded that the burnt offerings and sin offerings be made for all Israel. And he stationed the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals, with stringed instruments, with harps, according to the commandment of David, of Gad the king's seer, and Nathan the prophet. For thus was the commandment of the Lord by his prophets. The Levites stood with the instruments of David and the priests with the trumpets, then Hezekiah commanded them to offer burnt offerings on the altar, and when the burnt offerings began, the song of the Lord also began. Wow. Offering, singing, praise, powerful, as we used to say in the surf world, chicken skin. Goosebumps, man. This is real stuff right here. This is, and with the Syrians looming on the horizon, this is so powerful, body of Christ. The trumpets with the instruments of David, king of Israel. Verse 28. So all the assembly worshiped, the singers sang, and the trumpeters sounded. All this continued until the burnt offering was finished. And when they finished offering, the king and all who were present with him bowed and worshiped. Man, that's like the president in his cabinet. That's awesome. Moreover, King Hezekiah and the leader commanded the Levites to sing praise to the Lord with the words of David and of Asaph the seer. So they sang praises with gladness, and they bowed their heads and worship. Then Hezekiah answered and said, Now that you have consecrated yourselves to the Lord, 
Come near and bring sacrifices and thanks offering into the house of the Lord. So the assembly brought in sacrifices and thank offerings, and as many as were of a willing heart brought burnt offerings. And the number of burnt offerings which the assembly brought was 70 bulls, 100 rams, and 200 lambs. All these were for burnt offering to the Lord. The consecrated things were the 600 bulls and 3,000 sheep. But the priests were too few, so they could not skin all the burnt offerings. Therefore, their brethren, the Levites, helped them until the work was ended, until the other priests had sanctified themselves. For the Levites were more diligent in sanctifying themselves than the priests. Also, the burnt offerings were in abundance with the fat and the peace offerings, with the drink offerings for every burnt offering. So the service of the house of the Lord was set in order. Then Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced that God had prepared the people since the events took place so suddenly. Again, we've got a little notebook out and we're looking at words that jump out at us. There's a lot of good ones. So there's they presented the blood, there's atonement. The song of the Lord began, they bowed and worshiped, they sang praises, they sang praises, they had willing hearts. The Levites were diligent. Things were set in order, and it happened so fast. Just reading this text, it reminds you that once the Spirit of God starts moving, things can happen very fast. History shows that. Church history shows that once God's doing a revival, once God's doing something special in a person's life or in a, in a nation or in a region, like true revival, because there, there is times in true revival, things can happen very fast. Once the Lord decides he's going to move, he's moving. And if you think of your calendar for August 2023, and you were just chugging through the first week of August, and it's just kind of doldrums, business as usual, evil king, nobody's worshiping, the temple shut down, there's no animal sacrifices, and you just didn't go on a, a two-week vacation. You went away for a couple of weeks, and you came back and you saw this happening it was fast. It was fast. When the Lord moves and he's moving you, we got to be prepared to move with urgency and get our hustle on and get after whatever he's telling us to do. You got to move, move, move. Remember when he called me to go to Russia four years ago? It happened so fast. I'm praying for Dave Markey in Russia in the Calvary Chapel Missionary Prayer Book. I'm like, how did Dave Markey end up in Serbia? I mean, uh, Siberia. How did Dave Markey end up in Siberia? Like, what makes a guy from Indiana move to Siberia, Russia? I'm like, well, that's just the craziest thing. Huh. Well, I'm praying for him because I prayed through this book. Then the next morning, it came on my heart to call my friend back in North Carolina who's a pastor that had cancer. I call him. We start talking. I'm like, wait, you're, you're taking chemo right now? Yeah, but I'm headed for Russia. Really? I'm like, what are you doing? Well, I'm going to the pastor's conference in Vladimir. Then I'm going to go visit Dave Markey in Siberia. Huh. That's rather random. I was just praying for Dave Markey yesterday in Siberia. We started talking, and I said, ah, you, gosh, I think, I'm, I think maybe I'm supposed to go to Russia. I think maybe I'm supposed to go visit Dave Markey in Siberia. He goes, well, it's probably too late because you can't get the visa. I'm leaving like in eight days. It's just too, it's way more, way more involved. And I'm like, I don't know, man. I'm thinking if you're supposed to go to Russia, God's going to open up the door and you're going to go to Russia and it's going to happen fast. I go, give me one day to pray about it and talk to my wife. <laughs> they go together. And, uh, and I'll get back with you. And Jennifer's like, well, you know, as the Lord leads. And I called him 
next day in North Carolina, like, I, I, I'm going for it. I'm going to go for it. And he's like, okay, well, I don't think it's going to happen, but no harm in trying. And like nine days later, I'm in Vladimir going like, this is crazy. I am in Russia, comrade. You know, it's like, I'm like, how did this happen? It happened so fast. I'd never even thought to go to Russia in my entire life. And less than two weeks, I'm walking around Vladimir praying for the city and the pastor's conference. And lo and behold, within three weeks, I'm sitting in a church that was built on the gulags, that's the concentration camps of Stalin, in Siberia, sharing my personal testimony with five teenagers in a Baptist church in Siberia. When the Lord says, let's get it going, he's going to get it going. And is there, we've seen this already in this book, is anything too hard for the Lord? He can deliver with few or many. It's just very encouraging to me how fast the things happened. Like, with how rapid these events turned and how favorable they were. What a blessing. And they're scrambling, right? Like the Levites don't normally do the animal sacrifices. They kind of help with the other stuff, like the priests go inside the temple. But hey, man, all, all hands on deck. It's like your football team scrambling. Like, oh, you're a left guard. You usually block. Hey, you're going to be running back right now. Any, we need everyone in right now. We need, we need anyone who can play to get in the game. Let's go. It's, it's bang, 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 bang. Don't overthink it. Let's go. Let's do it. Let's make it happen. It's encouraging to me, and I hope it's encouraging to you. Don't overthink it. Since the events took place so suddenly, don't be closed-minded and so rigid that you can't let the Lord do events rapidly in your life for the purposes of your life. One of the things that's kept me urgent with the book that I've written, my autobiography, Beyond the Dream, because there's an ebb and flow in writing a book. Some days, it's like writing songs. You know, you can't just write songs. Like, you know, it's kind of like, hmm. You know, like it just kind of comes to you at different times where you're more effective in that creativity. But one thing that's been on my mind is every day I need to be moving forward toward this end product. Okay, so every day I need to be doing something, moving toward this specific goal to have this book done. But the other thing that's motivated me is I'm thinking, well, what if I was going to go into eternity? Like, what if I step into eternity by December 31st, 2023? Well, I better get my hustle on with the book. Because if I don't finish it, someone else has to finish it. And that's fine because it'll be someone I love. But, like, when you think that way with urgency, time-sensitive task and things with the Lord, it makes you more effective. We've talked about this. When there's an urgency of time, you become more focused and more effective. That's why the two-minute warning in football can take 30 minutes when you're watching on TV. Because everything becomes way more focused and more efficient. And there's far more points scored in a football game in the last two minutes. There's statistics that show this because the uh, the focus and efficiency of urgency of the moment. So I say all that to just be, be open to urgency with the Lord. And be open to things happening rapidly with what the Lord wants to do. Don't overthink it. It is just, this is a beautiful chapter. Now, there's chapters that say, hey, just wait on the Lord, but this isn't one of them. And that's why I read the whole counsel of God. You can really wait on the Lord at a different time, all right? This one says, hey, get going, get your hustle on. Times are, are, are serious times and seasons. We need to make things happen, make things happen, gather people, rather than make it happen, find a way, Levites, priests, whatever, whoever sanctified, get to it, make it happen, for things are happening fast, and we need to respond, not in a panic, but with quickness and urgency for what's going on. It's a great chapter. Chapter 30. We have two chapters tonight with Hezekiah. This is the second one. And Hezekiah sent to all Israel 
He's not done yet. And Hezekiah sent to all Israel and Judah and also wrote letters to Ephraim and Manasseh. They should come to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem to keep the Passover to the Lord God of Israel. He's, he's reaching out to Olive Branch, to the, what's left of the north. For the king and his leaders and all the assembly in Jerusalem had agreed to keep the Passover in the second month. For they could not keep it at the regular time because a sufficient number of priests had not consecrated themselves, nor had the people gathered together at Jerusalem. And the matter pleased the king and all the assembly, so they resolved to make a proclamation throughout all Israel, from Beersheba to the farthest south, by Egypt to Dan to the farthest north, by Lebanon and Syria, that they should come to keep the Passover to the Lord God of Israel at Jerusalem, since they had not done, uh, done it for a long time in the prescribed manner. Even here, they're a month late, but they're just going for it. Then the runners went throughout all Israel, uh, like the Pony Express. These guys are runners. They got the message, hear ye, hear ye. So they went running out through all Israel and Judah with the letters from the king and his leaders and spoke according to the command of the king. Listen to the content of this letter. Children of Israel, that's a broad net. It's open. They're inviting all Israel. This is a critical time in their history. Children of Israel, return to the Lord God of Abraham. I mean, they're going, Hezekiah is going right to it. We are the children of Abraham. Abraham's the father of promise, and we are the promised people. Return to the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Then he will return to the remnant of you who have escaped from the hand of the kings of Assyria. And do not be like your fathers and your brethren who trespass against the Lord God of their fathers, so that he gave them up to desolation as you see. Now do not be stiff-necked as your fathers were, but yield yourselves to the Lord and enter his sanctuary, which he has sanctified forever, and serve the Lord your God, that the fierceness of his wrath may be turned away from you. For if you return to the Lord your God, to the Lord, your brethren and your children will be treated with compassion by those who led them captive, so that they may come back to this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn his face from you if you return to him. So the runners passed from city to city through the country of Ephraim and Manasseh as far as Zebulun. Those are the northern tribes up by Galilee. But they laughed at them and mocked them. Nevertheless, some from Asher, Manasseh, and Zebulun humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem. Also, the hand of God was on Judah to give them singleness of heart to obey the command of the king and the leaders at the word of the Lord. It's just it's so nice, these chapters on the back end of the book, too. I mean, it's just the way it went chronologically, but such an exciting time. So Hezekiah, he's like David, that he realizes that God, it's the spirit of the law, not the letter of the law. Just that he's going to call for the Passover after it already happened. They'd be like, hey, we all miss Christmas because the Grinch stole Christmas, so we're going to celebrate Christmas on January 25th. You'd be like, what? What are you talking about? Like, you'd be like, you know, Americans would be like, what, what Thanksgiving in July? That's, that's just, just weird. Like, like, it's something like that. Like, plus it's religious too. So you'd be like, so, what, c- c- can you do that? Like, I mean, can we do Valentine's in April? Can we move Easter to August? Oh, that's, I don't know. Memorial weekend in October? See, like, you see, it just doesn't that sound foreign? It's just like, no, we go by this calendar as Americans, and we know this is what it's like, and you get a calendar set, you get little stickers for those things that are marked on your calendar. Ah, it's like Mother's Day in January. That'd be weird. Father's Day in February. Like, I don't, I don't know. Like, you know, like, like it, it's just so different, and it's religious. So think of Hezekiah's understanding toward the Lord and understanding that God looks at the heart 
He's more interested in the spirit of the law than the letter of the law. This is what Jesus ran into so much with his ministry, with the Pharisees and the legalists, where they, they would, well, Matthew 23, he just rebukes them for everything, where they'd strain out a gnat and they tied mitt and cumin, but they don't even understand what mercy and justice looks like and how they treat people, let alone compassion and grace. Hezekiah gets it. Hezekiah gets it. He knows that any direction toward the Lord is the right direction. And any step of faith toward who he is and mercy and grace and making crooked paths straight is a good step. Like he's pleading for those who are in the north whose relatives and kids have been taken off in captivity. Hey, because he's quoting what God promised in Deuteronomy and he's quoting what Solomon prayed earlier when we were looking at Solomon. If you humble yourselves in these faraway lands, God will bring you back. He's just, he's not making up some mythical promise about God. He's quoting promises that God made to him. He's like, hey, it's bad, but it can be good. Let's do this. Let's keep the Passover. I know it's the wrong month. I know we're a day late and a dollar short, but still, it's better to show up the second day than not at all. Let's, let's start here. We, can't, we weren't ready, but now we're ready. Let's, let's, let's make it happen. I believe God really puts a premium on women and men who don't overthink it. And even if you feel like you lost out, that you still go for it and make something happen. Even the evil people in the Old Testament, when they did something right, even like Ahab, just for a moment one day, God shows them a measure of mercy for it. So it really is always the right time to do the right thing. And it's always going to be a good thing to steer yourself toward spiritual things. And of course, there's always going to be the cackling of fools who... They're going right off a cliff like lemming into the sea, and they're laughing at you while they're falling off the cliff, right? You can't reason with these people, and there's more of these people than not in the human experience in every generation. They laughed and mocked at them. But nevertheless, see, broad and, I said this Saturday night, broad and wide is the way that leads to destruction, and many go thereby. Again, 80% of people just exist. They, they, don't, they, don't, they don't have dreams. They don't have purpose. They just exist. And governments appeal to them because if they promise those people they don't have to work too hard, those people vote for them and keep them in power. They just exist. They're not living for a dream, let alone the call of the Lord. But here's the beauty. When you give your life to Christ and we pass from death to life, we become kingdom-minded. And we all have purpose that we enter into. We're being restored to a lost glory from the Garden of Eden. The second Adam is restoring us. So you see, the moment we give our life to Christ, we are on the narrow path and our life has meaning and purpose and divine calling. So it doesn't matter if we're Zacchaeus in the tree, or Matthew in the tax collecting booth, or Peter, Andrew, John, and James with the fishing business. Once the Lord calls you, he calls you. And now you're that narrow gate. You are that 5%. Because if the sun sets you free, you're free indeed. And if he promises you abundant life, now your life isn't mundane and just existing. Your life has value and purpose to the highest level of divinity of what God's intended for you in humanity. Isn't that glorious? Once we just turn toward the Lord, toward the kingdom, good things happen. And look what it says. So there's always going to be the laughter and the mocking of senseless people who are perishing. Always. Always, they're always going to be the majority because they're taken captive by the devil and they're fallen 
from the dust we came, the dust returned. Praise God. I learned a long time ago to quit trying to figure out fools. I just learned to look in the mirror and make sure I'm not one. Capiche? Yeah. What are you going to do? But it says, it says that the hand of God, the hand of the God of the hand of God was on Judah to give them singleness of heart. Again, like in a marriage, when people maybe don't have a good marriage, they come together. It doesn't always happen. In fact, it's actually rare that it does when there's an estranged relationship. Still, though, the moment, anytime, whether it's singleness of heart in marriage, singleness of heart in a church that's struggling with division and discord, it's singleness of heart in a workplace that's being torn apart, singleness of heart in a larger family where there's maybe wealth involved and people are just undergirding, you know, undercutting each other. Once we have the mind of the Lord, because Christ is not divided, and he gives us singleness of heart, then there's such unity for the work of the Lord. If you go back to the book of Acts, and there after the church was established, we read that after the day of Pentecost, that they were of one mind and one accord. They ate their bread with gladness and simplicity of heart. They met daily in the temple and house to house. And they, they share what they had out of necessity with one another. There was singleness of heart. Christ is not divided. And when a people, whether it's just one person not having a divided heart with himself or herself in the mirror, when our heart is singleness of heart with the Lord, wow, how meaningful and fruitful our life is. The richness of life the way it's meant to be on the highest dimension with eternity in us now, living eternal life. When we share it with other people who are singleness of heart, the joy and the beauty of it. And we can't make everybody unite with us in the mind of the Lord with the singleness of heart. But if our heart's right with the Lord, it will facilitate more people's hearts being right with the Lord. It'll make things better. We'll always be a part of the solution, not the problem, if we have singleness of heart with the Lord and his plans for our life and that which is entrusted to us. Verse 13, now many people, uh, a very great assembly gathered at Jerusalem to keep the feast of unleavened bread in the second month, right? So you always focus on what God's doing, not the mockers and what he's not doing, focus on what he's doing. Verse 14, they arose and they took away the altar that were, the altars that were in Jerusalem and they took away all the incense altars then cast them in the brook Kidron. So they got rid of all the faulty things that weren't of the Lord. Then they slaughtered the Passover lambs on the 14th day of the second month the priests and Levites were ashamed and sanctified themselves. Yep, we can see why they were, because just not long ago, none of them were, were doing what they were called to do. But still, you got to focus on today. We can't change yesterday. And they brought the burnt offerings to the house of the Lord. They stood in their place according to their custom, according to the law of Moses, the man of God. The priests sprinkled the blood received from the hand of the Levites, for there were many in the assembly who had not sanctified themselves. Therefore, the Levites had charge of the slaughter of the Passover lambs for everyone who was not clean to sanctify them to the Lord. For a multitude of people from Ephraim, Manasseh, Issachar, and Zebulun had not cleansed themselves, yet they ate the Passover contrary to what was written. It's like a free-for-all church, you know. <laughs> but Hezekiah prayed for them, saying, May the good Lord provide atonement for everyone who prepares his heart to seek God. The Lord God of his fathers, though he is not cleansed according to the purification of the sanctuary. And the Lord listened to Hezekiah and healed the people. So the children of Israel who were present at Jerusalem kept the Feast of Unleavened Bread seven days with great gladness. 
and the Levites and the priests praised the Lord day by day, singing to the Lord. And this is, I just can't get over WD how beautiful these chapters are. And it's day by day, praising and singing to the Lord, accompanied by loud instruments. And Hezekiah gave encouragement to all the Levites who taught the good knowledge of the Lord. And they ate throughout the, the feast seven days, offering peace offerings and making confession to the Lord God of their fathers. Then the whole assembly agreed to keep the feast another seven days. Why not? They're having a good time. And they, they kept it another seven days with gladness. For Hezekiah, king of Judah, gave the assembly a thousand bulls and seven thousand sheep. And the leaders gave the assembly a thousand bulls and ten thousand sheep. And a great number of priests sanctified themselves. The whole assembly of Judah rejoiced. Also the priests and the Levites. The assembly that came from Israel. The sojourners. And they're just randomly passing through. Hey, there's a party in Jerusalem. This is great. Who came from the land of Israel and those who dwelt in Judah. So there was, a great, there was great joy in Jerusalem. For since the time of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, there had been nothing like this in Jerusalem. Then the priests, the Levites, arose and blessed the people, and their voice was heard, and their prayer came up to his holy dwelling place to heaven. Man, the words, the descriptions of this record are just amazing. So not since the time of Solomon, that's 931 B.C. when he stepped into eternity, and the Syrians took captive of the north in 722 B.C. So we're talking like 225 years. It's, it's like, that's before the... <laughs> The War of 1812, right? Like, that, that's a long time ago for us. That's a long time. And here, here you thought it's the worst time to be alive, right? Hey, listen to me, Z generation and millennials. Here you thought it's the worst time to be alive, right? Oh, it couldn't be worse. They tell us we have a bleaker future than any generation that came before us, blah, 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 right? Well, forget that. That's nonsense. God can flip the script like that. Ahaz was king just a short time before this, and it was the worst. Fear, 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 anxiety, fear, 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 the news line, social media, fear, 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 conspiracy, fear, 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 this, that, and everything else. And all it takes is one godly man who's got power to step up and change the narrative. All it takes is one godly woman who's all in to step up and change the narrative. So I would just tell the future generation, don't accept the narrative that anyone's putting on you. Write your own narrative. Set your mind toward the Lord. Let him, let him write that narrative. And if you're old and crusty, then let God break up the fallow ground and write a new narrative. Don't you like a, a story that's very dramatic in chapters like episode 14 and 15, but 16 is a happy ending? That's the best. It doesn't have to end in episode 15. Episode 16 is the best one where it's all the happy ending. And you just go like, wow, I feel so good. We can do that. What I really like about Hezekiah in this last segment and this storyline from the Passover, it, it, it is a, it's, a, it's a, well, I suppose some people would call this charismatic chaos. <laughs> I mean, it's just a free-for-all, right? I mean, they're, they're dancing, they're doing everything, and it's, just, it's man, it, it's a fun time. It would have been so fun to be at this afterglow with the Lord. What a good time. But what I love about Hezekiah is, he prays for the Lord, like, hey, Lord, you know, we're, we're, it's all wrong. We're, we're a day late and a dollar short. We're, we're a month late. This is all wrong. The Levites are out there, like, cutting, doing this and that when the priest should be doing Like, could you, just, could you just show, like, mercy on all this? And Jesus is right there going, like, that's who I am. I'm mercy. Man looks at the hour, but God looks at the heart. This is beautiful to me. 
your prayer is heard. That's what it says. The Holy Spirit tells us God approved of these things, which reminds us yet again, it's the spirit of the law with the Lord more than the letter of the law because it's about the heart. Christ is for people. Jesus is for humanity. Jesus is for the lost. That's, he came to seek and to save that which is lost. This is such a great reminder. Like, I do like things set in order like the previous chapter, but you know, you need a, you need a Passover free-for-all every once in a while. You just need some Passover lamb blood flying all over the place and under the blood, and you just need the spirit falling, people praising, and, and just big old barbecue for two weeks, man. Sometimes what you need to remind you that God's not put in our box, but he's, he's the God of the Holy Spirit and the God of the moment, and he knows how to reveal himself to people. And so we want to make sure that we're ambassadors and facilitators of grace, humility, and mercy, compassion, and empathy. So people know no matter how chaotic it is, just come under the blood, and we'll just go forward, and we'll, we'll figure this out as we go. Right? Yes, and amen. amen.